Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. This week, we are discussing again a number of the logistics facing most mountain town communities, and we are discussing a number of the potential solutions. And I said this about the conversation that I had with Dr. Jenny Stuber when we had a conversation about these topics. Well, I can honestly say it again that if you are someone who lives in a mountain town or you are someone who loves to visit them, I am confident that our conversation today will help you better understand and think through the various factors and forces at play in many of these mountain communities and also think better about some of the potential solutions. Now, our guest today is Troy Russ, who is the Community Development Director of Crested Butte. Troy has a long history in community planning and development, so is able to provide an incredibly well-informed perspective on these topics. Troy also happens to be a passionate skier, a beer aficionado, and my neighbor... And I truly believe that you are going to enjoy and appreciate getting to hear Troy's take on a number of these very big topics as much as I do. And so with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Troy Russ. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to be here in Blister headquarters with my neighbor, Troy Russ. Troy, first of all, welcome to Blister HQ. I'm glad you get to finally check out headquarters and I guess you both get to see it for the first time and also have your first time on uh, the blister podcast thank you Jonathan it's kind of exciting to to be here to see the the HQ and all the demos around me Uh, but more importantly to have a conversation with a neighbor and a friend so this is going to be fun well we just had another really interesting conversation about all of these topics just a couple days ago actually down at town hall in Crested Butte which is where you work. So why don't we start there and have you just talk a bit about what your job here is in Crested Butte. And then I want to get into a bit of your own work history. Sure. Uh, I am the community development director of the town of Crested Butte. And in that role, uh, we help the town manage all development within the town, both public and private. So if someone wants to build a home or a retail environment, they have to come through our department. If we need to do an affordable housing initiative, I would lead it through my department. Got it. And, you know, we should say you have had a chance to listen to my previous conversation that I had with Dr. Jenny Stuber. And with some fear and trembling, I, you know, asked you to check that one out. And I didn't know if you were going to be like, okay, well, Jenny was smart, but Jonathan, you said a lot of dumb things. Thankfully, you seem to think that was a good conversation. And our, our job today is to kind of build off of that, I think, conversation. But before we get there, I want to let people know a bit about your own background and work experience and thinking through these big issues of, you know, how do you build a community and issues of affordable housing and the rest. So talk a bit about that work history of yours and some of the different communities that you've, in fact, worked in. 
Yeah, happy to. I am a, a 30 year veteran of the community planning profession. Uh, I've spent about half of that time working in the private sector and half with the public sector. Uh, I started my career out uh, fighting transportation initiatives. We first hired to fight the 710 freeway in Pasadena. We also fought Disney's Historic America in Virginia. And we ended up building free uh, alternatives to freeways throughout the country. And it was always about building community. Can we use transportation investments to build community? So that was my private career, working for advocacy groups. And then I joined the public sector in the town of Louisville, Colorado, and started to understand, which is just outside of Boulder in Denver, and started to understand the challenges of working on the public side. And now I'm here in Crested Butte working in paradise, uh, fighting to keep this town great. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, maybe. I would be interested to hear you, <laughs> you try to sum up my last conversation with Jenny or just what you thought were some of the, the, the most important table stakes in that conversation. And, or maybe what you just thought were some of the most important takeaways from that to let us kind of, you know, then yield into our own conversation today, like I said, to build off that. Is that all right? I think that's great. Okay. I, I think your interview was, was spot on. And it was very important to just to raise awareness to the issue. And Jenny was fantastic with a great, probably the town that every mountain community looks to because they've been fighting it the longest in Aspen. And I think she did an excellent job in sort of explaining their history and the challenges. Um, she brought up the coin of, and this is where I may differ slightly, uh, you can't bring a knife to a bazooka fight. I agree with that. But I do believe governments and communities have way more than a knife that they could bring to the table. And if we could raise awareness, I think your podcast is starting to do that to the general public. And with political will, communities can bring much more than a knife to the fight uh, and, and deal with economics. So I thought it was wonderful in getting the terminology down, the challenges down of mountain communities. And hopefully we can build in this podcast to raise awareness to the possibilities of making more equitable communities in the mountains. By the way, you have your own interesting connection to Aspen. I do. You were telling me about this the other day. Why don't you let the rest of the folks know? My great-great-grandfather came from Cork, Ireland and landed in Aspen. Uh, in the 1800s, he became the Pitkin County tax assessor and was there through uh, from 1898 to 1922. And in the silver crash of 22, uh, the family moved down to Denver. So it's kind of fun, 30 years into my career, that I've only landed 13 miles away from Aspen over, over the hill in Crested Butte. But it's also maybe given you beyond your own work experience, like it's given you reason to be thinking about and, and witnessing some of the changes to these different places over the years and what we do about, you know, ever-changing communities. I guess that fits. Everything changes in communities, right? Except for the roads. Buildings change, people change, they turn over time. And Aspen has changed tremendously. And I'm very aware I've been going to the Aspen since I was born. Um, and it did found and aim me towards the profession I'm in. Okay. So as, as I told you, I feel a lot of responsibility in this particular conversation, in part because, I mean, these are complex things, complex topics. And so it's hard for me to even know like where to begin in this conversation. So maybe what I'm going to do is cop out and ask you where you think we ought to begin. Uh, again, you know, maybe, maybe it's 
if not exactly where we left off in the last conversation, but just to start providing another perspective, you know, to now join in with the last conversation we had here. What, what do you think we should start with? Well, I think you would start with the last conversation and it, it really focused on inequity and affordable housing and those challenges. I think Jenny did a great job. I thought you did great questions. And now coming into the community planning perspective, I want to remind people that's one piece of the puzzle. It's a very, very important piece, but one piece. And the local governments have to deal with housing. They have to deal with transportation. They have to deal with parks and recreation. They have to deal with economic development and local business support. And so understanding that there's many elements to community planning. Um, and it's hard sometimes when you are so close to one subject of affordability or housing trying to understand how that fits within the puzzle. And it could be very frustrating. Uh, and until you get into the process, uh, it almost might be a, a turnoff or saying, what is government doing? And hopefully this conversation can open the eyes that we want housing and housing is very important, but we want to do it uh, in collaboration with the other important elements of community. And that's been one of the interesting things, again, in the conversation we had at Town Hall the other day, there is this understandable focus right now on affordable housing, on short-term rentals, these topics. What I think is interesting about, well, what you do and the perspective that you have to bring every single day to your job is you have called this sort of linear thinking versus comprehensive thinking, or we could say, you know, we can focus on one value. And in this case, that one value might be affordable housing. But what I find interesting that you do is you're like, yeah, but there's multiple values that we have to keep in mind. And I actually wasn't sure that I completely agreed with you on that initially. And you've made some compelling points. And so maybe we start there and talk a bit about that. Well, I just want to start on Crested Butte on June 7th declared a housing emergency as an equivalent to a natural disaster. And that was a big step. So it is the absolute priority of staff and council to address this. And we did this because 15% of our workforce was unfilled and there was only one house for rent or one unit for rent in town with 15% of our workforce unfilled. And many of those unfilled positions are town staff positions. So this becomes a critical element of us to provide services to our community and then us to just have a sustainable economy. And so housing is a critical piece of that. And I just want to, we don't, misjudge or don't understand the importance of that. We do. We're probably one of the very few communities in the country to declare an emergency. So that being said, even though it's an emergency, we don't want to do something at the expense of other core community values. And an example, we had a great housing forum a couple months ago. And one of the questions to me on the panel was, do we want to put housing on public open space? And we have to put brakes on that. That's linear thinking of, yes, that would provide more housing, but at what expense? Are we compromising a very important core value of nature or amenities that are publicly driven? And so I think what the, the Community Development Department of Crested Butte and our team is wanting what we call comprehensive planning, or I'd say collaborative comprehensive planning, uh, in that we need to understand our core values 
And then whatever challenge we have, we need to filter the solutions against those values and do a trade-off and say, is it worth it? Um, we certainly wouldn't want to um, compromise our natural amenities at the for the sake of housing uh, or compromise recreational opportunities for the benefit of transportation, right? You, ha you have to balance and have a collaborative conversation. So sometimes government is frustrating because uh, it's a bureaucracy and it's a bureaucracy because we're providing multiple services. We give everyone water and sewer. We give everyone recreation and we need to continue those core services. And so we want to make sure whatever request comes to the town and how we move forward doesn't do it at the expense of a core value or a core service. So it's very frustrating, uh, but I think we can do great process. And, and I think your series and other series raising awareness is getting people to understand that, then more people can participate in a meaningful way uh, to go forward. Do we wanna take all parks and recreation fundings away from the town for the sake of housing? Of course not, right? And so that's the conversation that we have to have. Do we have to prioritize housing? Absolutely. And so how do you do that? And that's that's sort of the center poison of my job. When you talk about these multiple values or even multiple core values, I mean, there's going to have to be compromise at some point, isn't there? Are you more optimistic than I am? And you look at when you go to work every morning, you're like, my job is to thread the needle where actually you think, no, we can actually pull some of this off with no compromise. Or is it always about you know, reducing compromises as much as humanly possible. I think compromise is what we do. And it takes a village to understand that, right? So we are going to be doing trade-offs on every topic. What I'm saying is we don't want to do anything at the expense of something else. In other words, we're wiping out a core value for one other core value. And that's where you got to be careful. So yes, compromise is what we need to bring to the table and we need to bring education so people can understand the trade-offs. And if the community is willing to do that trade-off, then by all means, we need to go forward. Let me ask you this. I'm thinking about, you know, people who love and frequently visit and or live in places like Telluride or Tahoe or Crested Butte or Stowe, Vermont or something, right? I'd love to hear you spell out, again, just as we try to clarify the thinking for all of us listening to this, I'd love to hear you spell out maybe what you would regard to be, I don't know, three to five of the most shared core values that you think probably hold true for most mountain communities? What do you think of that? Absolutely. Um, and I think this is an important conversation because the town of Crested Butte doesn't have a comprehensive plan that has enumerated our core values. So asking about what I think other mountain communities have will be very informative to the town of Crested Butte. I think first and foremost, nature. Uh, in Crested Butte, the miners, the hippies, the skiers, we all came here for one reason, nature. And first and foremost, I think uh, pedestrian quality of life or the pedestrian character. So these most mountain towns have a historic core. You think of Ketchum, you think of Aspen, you think of Telluride. It's a very walkable people-friendly place. It's a person-first environment rather than a car-first environment. Most mountain communities have that as a core value. Um, I think access to recreation, which is different than nature. When I say nature, it's water quality, it's forest quality, it's habitat. Recreation is our ability to enjoy it. Are we cross-country skiing? Are we um, 
ATVing, are we snow skiing, what, whatever. It's the recreational aspect of that. I think the last one that I think is commonly shared are the people and the core essence of the people and the diversity of different incomes, different perspectives, and, and how do we preserve that? That would be a core value as well. I think those are the, the larger core values. And then within them, the technical pieces fall out, the transportation solutions, the housing solutions, the specific recreational plans come from these larger core values. Okay. So again, when we are so concerned as so many communities are these days about affordable housing let's you know we can talk about affordable housing and short-term rentals how then do we start to think about those specific issues in the context of those four or five core values you just outlined well i think that's a direct core value related to the people right because we need to house our people and our businesses. And what's unique about most mountain towns are the unique businesses and the people who run them and the, and the people who work for them. That's what attracts us to these communities. So when we start talking about affordable housing or STRs, it's our ability to actually live here because um, STRs is not a land use, it's a licensed business that takes away from housing stocks. So housing is always about supply and demand. How many houses do you supply and what's your demand? How many people need to live there? And so when you talk about STRs, it directly affects the supply and demand, which then affects the people and the core value of, of having a diverse representation of the population. And so that's how STRs and housing relate to these larger core values. This is your job, right, Troy? Let's start helping you walk us through a path to potential solutions. And we can keep that specific to Crested Butte and we can let other people listening to this, you know, think about how this might be tailored or customized for their own community. But like, how, what do we do? Like, what are we doing? Well, I'll give you a, a very specific example with our short-term rentals. Crested Butte has a very good short-term rental regulation. Uh, it was adopted in 2017. It capped the number of short-term rentals within the community. And, and it really started to balance uh, how the rentals fit a business fit within the neighborhoods. That being said, we just passed a moratorium on that uh, licensure procedures to reevaluate it because there are holes in the 2017 regulation. And so now we want to press those against our other community values, right? I think people want to have a quality neighborhood to live in. And with short-term rentals, you have change and turnover, some great tenants, some not so great tenants, and they're not necessarily a great neighbor. Uh, our regulation doesn't manage the concentration of them. So we have whole blocks in Crested Butte that are short-term rentals. There, I have one resident who called me and said, I'm the only full-time resident on this one block. That's a pretty lonely environment. So as we look at our STRs, we wanna certainly look at the distribution of them. Uh, we also wanna look at the simple economics. Our, our hotels are struggling. Our STRs are booming. Is that a logical business model? Should we, through zoning and our licensure, say start to discourage STRs so that our hotels get used again? It's a, it's a clear economic challenge. And so we're spending the next 12 months to 
not allow any new licenses in town. If you had a license, you can keep it, but now we're gonna completely revamp our short-term rental regulations against our multiple core values. They didn't do that in 2017 because we didn't have a comprehensive plan at the time. So the reason we're putting a 12-month moratorium on it, the first six months is we're coming up with what we're calling our community compass in Crested Butte so we can as a community, identify our core values and from those core values, create a new short-term rental regulation. So I take it you would say, I mean, every town, whether it's a mountain town or not, probably might want to have this community comprehensive plan or kind of that community compass. Like, let's get one, just get clear and determine what do we actually think is worth valuing and what's maybe less of a priority. So one, it sounds like you would say, let's start there if we don't already have such a plan right. in place. Okay. All right. The next thing I want to ask you about is just development, right? We've had some interesting conversations about this. Again, so you can look at a place and say, hey, uh, there is a lack of affordable housing. Let's start developing more specific affordable housing. You have your reservations about this. And I, one way to put it might be, you are not sure one can always develop one's way out of an issue like this. Can you say more about this? Absolutely. I'm convinced you cannot build your way out of the affordable housing challenge in Crested Butte or many of our beautiful mountain communities throughout the country, simply because we have a, an amenity that many, many people want and the demand to live here, to recreate here, to vacation here, far exceeds our supply to accommodate it. And so if we ever forever want to build more, we're gonna create, we're gonna to continue to maintain a housing deficit. We have no community has, I say we have a perfect equilibrium of housing. In fact, after all these years of housing, coming after housing in a very deliberate way, all the communities are short and we're having a housing challenge. So building our way out of it, and you think that's the sole direction, uh, you're not going to solve the problem. There will always be more people interested in coming to these locations. Well, the more people you have, the more services you need to provide. So as you continue to grow, you continue to provide needs for employment and you're creating this cycle of growth. And that, that, that economic model is based on growth and there's many different economic models. So yes, we need to build more housing, but we also need to readdress our ideas of what is economic growth or what is economic success and balance that with our core values. That seems easier said than actually done. So help us think more clearly on that. Like what, what does that mean or what does that look like from your perspective? Well, I, th I think one from our perspective is we have an existing housing stock in town yeah. and we need to understand that housing stock and what it represents. About half of our housing stock is single family, very expensive homes that will forever stay very expensive. And that is what they are. And many of them are going to be second homes. Many of them are going to be lived in, but that is what they are. But it's not the only housing type we have in town. We have a number of condominiums, townhomes, uh, quadruplex, duplexes that we can actually start to address. And if we can assure those fewer units affordability, you're not expanding. Uh, 
you're actually focusing on what you already have. So we're not creating a need for more restaurant workers. We're actually addressing our existing housing and trying to make them more affordable. Keep going. So how do we get there? Like what would a potential plan or program look like to make that happen? In, in fact, we're developing it. So we're modeling after Vail and, and Summit County and we're calling it an Indeed program. And so it's a program that we have funds for to work with the existing housing stock and the existing property owners, incentivize them to deed restrict their property. And so we would give them cash incentive to put a limit on their house. Now, this is tough in, in, a, in a capitalistic society. And so some of these deed restrictions can be very uh, mild and just say, hey, we want you to rent this place. So it, it would stay it as a rental and it would stay as a rental within the community. But we would give a cash incentive to put a deed restriction so it's not a permanent full-time residence or what a second home. That's a really mild deed restriction. Others, we could say only local workers can live in the unit. No, no appreciation cap, it can still grow. We have a number of those in Crested Butte. But we would give the existing residents cash incentive, pay for that deed restriction, and then deed restriction would be a contract between the property and the town to forever then behave that way going forward. And so that's not the only answer. It's a, a, a kit of parts. That's one of the tools that we're looking to. So that's one of the tools you're examining just you speaking personally, not in your official position, do you think that's one of the most compelling tools or what do you personally think would sort of, what program would provide the kind of most bang for the buck, which is a weird way to put it, I guess, right. or have the biggest impact? So the, the biggest impact is building more supply and we are doing that. We have 16, 18 units coming out of Paradise Park next year. We're master planning what we're calling Sixth and Butte right now is another 60 units. So that has to continue to go forward, but it can't be the only answer because we know that won't work. So I'm actually very encouraged by the Indeed program because it's much more incentive-based. Uh, we allow what we call accessory dwelling units to be built with our private homes. Can we use this Indeed program to help a homeowner build an ADU? So they would have un no constraints on their primary structure, but then this Indeed program could incentivize property owners to build accessory dwelling units that then would be used for long-term rental and long-term rental only. And so we have 98 of those in town. It's been very successful, uh, but not many have been built lately because they were, the regulation was originally put in place. So the homeowners would build an ADU to supplement their mortgage. The people buying in Crested Butte now don't need a supplemental payment for their mortgage. So we've seen a real drop off in ADUs being built. So now we think we need to incentivize uh, with cash and help uh, incentivize homeowners to build the ADU uh, and motivate them to build long-term rentals. And we need sticks, but we also need carrots and we need to work with our investors. We need Crested Butte to be an investment community that people, in other words, we want people to invest in our community, upgrade their houses, continue to go to restaurants. If we create a program that incentivizes people to build housing supply and not just regulate or build on our own, it's going to be a much more successful program. We'll have more buy-in, more community support of the program to incentivize. So carrots have to be a part of the equation. And that's where the Indeed program has a lot of potential. Okay. Just in case some people listening to this have not had an adequate amount of coffee yet, I might put myself in that category. 
I would like you to walk through one one example of this, right? So let's let's say there is a couple and they are interested in building a home in Crested Butte. Walk us through the kind of scenario that you're talking about here. I mean, just a hypothetical scenario. Sure. But so right now, if you want to build a home in Crested Butte, you are required to build an accessory dwelling unit with that house. And with that, they are required to use that ADU only for long-term rental. Okay. That's required. Let's define some terms. Accessory dwelling unit. That yes. is not a term that normal people use in everyday life. What is yeah. an accessory dwelling unit? Thank you, Jonathan. I sometimes get wonky in my profession. So an accessory dwelling unit is an apartment over a garage. If you have your primary house and then you have your accessory unit. And the accessory unit typically is detached related to a garage, above a garage, a granny flat, uh, in-law suite. Those are common terms. Um, and so it's a much smaller unit. It's typically one, maybe two bedroom uh, that's associated on the lot, but it's not the primary home. That's what an ADU is. And so in Crested Butte, you're required to build one, but you have an option. You don't have to build one. You could pay the town what we call resident occupied affordable housing fee. So they would give us fee in lieu of building the ADU. And that's what's been happening. It started off with big success in getting uh, home builders to build accessory dwelling units, but now they're stopped doing it. So they'll pay the fee and then they'll just build a heated garage or something that isn't a living unit that's deed restricted for a long-term rental. So if I'm a homeowner now, the town requires you to do it. So the Indeed program would say, instead of you just paying your ROA fees, we'll help you buy and build uh, an ADU to incentivize you to do it. And every ADU comes with a re deed restriction that says it has to be for a local long-term rental. That's pretty cool. It just seems like if we could go back in time a little bit, if we would have not held out the workarounds or wiggle room in this seems like maybe seems like if we could go back in time we might want to have made that change yes i agree and actually council is considering a moratorium on building accessory structures right now it's going to before council next week so that we can go back and maybe take away the build around and just require the adu to be built that is on the council docket next week is there much precedent in other communities that have implemented this in exactly the way you might find most compelling? Do you know of any towns that are doing this already and have you know seen success with this? A lot of communities have success with accessory dwelling units and Crested Butte is in the forefront of it. We were restricted by court cases. Um, there was a court case, I forgot the exact time and, and name of it, but the, the Supreme Court in Colorado if you just required them to build the affordable unit, that was unconstitutional. And you had to give them an option to pay out of it. That has been re-examined and now the town does have legal authority just to require it. That's why we're actually considering a moratorium to require the ADUs to be a part of it. But we were restricted by the Colorado Constitution uh, back in the day. Got it, so that that's why. Okay, what was the name of the fee, by the way? We call it ROA, so it's the Resident Occupied Affordable Housing, so R-O-A-H. It's a Crested Butte term that in lieu of building your accessory dwelling unit, you need to pay this fee. And so businesses need to do it too. If I'm a business and I'm coming in, we know you're generating employees and those employees need to 
have a house. And so we require anyone, be it commercial or residential, to pay a ROA fee if they don't provide housing. That's a flat fee or that's a... It is a flat fee and we're, we're looking at the fee and, and seeing if we need to raise it. Where should we go next? Well, I think the, the challenge here is this is great balancing uh, positives and negatives and how do you get the core values balanced, but solve the problem, Troy. And, and I, I think we need to manage everyone's expectation. It's probably not a problem we can solve and have a sustainable economy. There's always going to be a, an imbalance. What we need to do is minimize that imbalance and make sure that we're minimizing the number of employees that have to commute into town. And that is an uphill fight. And so what's next is can we do something in the regulatory framework to bring more than a knife to a bazooka fight, to quote Jenny. And I think we have lots of tools to do that. Uh, everyone says, everyone have a free market. Well, government has a role in the free market. We've always controlled zoning. We've told the free market where and what type of homes can be built throughout the town. So government always plays a role in the free market. And so this November, there is a ballot initiative to Crested Butte Council just approved ballot language that introduces what we're calling the community housing tax. And what it is, it's actually a tax on unoccupied second homes. It's a $2,500 flat fee uh, for every home. If it's vacant for six months or more, it is considered a, uh, a, a a second home, non-primary residence, and it would be subject to this fee. So every short-term rental would be uh, subject to this fee because those aren't occupied for six months or more. And so that is a way we bring in revenue. Now, it's coupled with a half-cent sales tax, not including groceries, so that together those two things are going to do many things for the town. And what we want them to do for the town is raise money, we want it to encourage more local residents. So if you're a full-time resident, you're not paying that tax. And so that's an incentive. We don't care about your income. We want you to live in town. We love it when people live in town. Uh, we want to create more affordable housing, right? Is there, are there some homes that uh, come back onto the market because this $2,500 fee discourages it from behaving like a second home and actually gets back on the market so a local can get it? It's going to be very few, uh, but it'll be on the lower end of our housing stock, but it will incentivize some of that. How do we promote what we call economic mobility or what I call generational mobility. And what Crested Butte is very proud of, our miners first came here in the 60s, or I'm sorry, in the 1800s, and they lived through the 60s before the mines closed, and it transitioned to the hippies and the skiers. And there's a beautiful movie out called High Country. It's about Crested Butte. And it talked about how those two generations helped live together and go forward. What we don't have is what they did have back then is our next generation probably can't stay here and raise a family because of our prices. So we might have a whole bunch of one bedroom studio ADUs around so the workers can supply uh, enough fun for our visitors, but we really don't have a chance for our workers to raise a family and live here. So we're really focusing on generational mobility. And economic mobility is your, your ability to move up the ladder. Uh, generational mobility is you actually have kids who get to live here. And that's the core essence of a community. And Crested Butte has done wonderfully up to now. And one of the challenges with our housing 
product is how do we ensure that? And that is something the planning department and council is really working hard on. And then lastly is let's not do this at the expense of our other core values. And so we're starting a community compass, September 22nd and 23rd. We're showing them at our art center. We're showing the movie High Country. And then we're having a community dialogue. Everyone who was in that movie is going to be on a panel and talk about how the the miners and the hippies got along. We need to now talk about our tourism and tourism economy, second homeowners and the local workforce. How do we go forward together? That's going to start September 22nd. And we'll end it with a really cool local movie called Born from Junk. I don't know if you've seen it. It's the history of mountain biking in Crested Butte. It's a beautiful movie. And so anyone interested in mountain biking in Crested Butte, it's a short 20-minute movie, but it hits all the icons in the valley who helped create this place. So that's that's the really important one because we don't have a comprehensive plan uh, that identifies our core values. So starting in September, we're going forward with that. But um, I think the most prevalent thing we're going to be very interested in what our citizens think of this community housing tax and second home non-primary residence fee or tax. Uh, and if they support it, we think there could be much more than a knife in a bazooka fight. Let's stay on this very sexy topic of taxes just for a second. Mm-hmm. As we're talking about various solutions and trying to figure out which solutions might be better or worse, I figured like we might as well just put this out there. You know, one thing that a town could do is just raise property taxes in general on everybody, right? And then I guess collect that money and put that in a fund toward the development of more affordable housing. Talk about what you think are the pros and cons of like a general property tax versus can we are we allowed to call the other one a dark tax? Is that weird? I like I'm not gonna call it a dark tax, but you you I can, can call it. <laughs> okay. You want to call it community something, something? The community housing tax. Community housing tax. All right. Talk about just some pros and cons of that. Well, I think when you look, so taxing is next to the a municipality's budget. Taxing is the most powerful public policy tool you have. And you can incentivize, motivate based on taxes and your budget. So how do you raise money? So the first thing we thought about in our housing policy recommendations to council is how do we achieve multiple goals? So one of the core goals is we need to make sure Crested Butte stays affordable. We can't have a housing policy that is raising the cost of living. And I'll give you an example. Food in Crested Butte is expensive. Uh, We have a tax burden in town of 9.4% sales tax burden. Uh, That's very high. And if we add to the sales tax, you're making food more expensive. So this is why I mentioned the sales tax, we're not including groceries because that's going, that's the most important part of local living and let's not raise the cost. So in Crested Butte, property taxes also raise rents. We have a wonderful local business community uh, that's struggling, right? As land prices go up, running those businesses, paying those rents and raising property tax is going to challenge them to be more successful. And it may price some of our local businesses out. So while property taxes are equitable across the board, it does raise the cost of living. And we're at great risk of losing a core value are unique businesses. Uh, 
And so that's why we didn't, as staff, make a recommendation to council on a property tax, nor did we start with a sales tax. And I think the community dialogue, as the tax conversation happened, the second homeowners made a very compelling argument that everyone needs to come and contribute. And that's where the half cent sales tax came in, minus the groceries. So the second homeowners through the, the community housing tax would be paying, and then the full-time residents would be supporting it through the half cent sales tax. So we came to a community solution uh, as that. But those are some of the positives and negatives related to property tax and sales tax. I want to ask you now about a very specific affordable housing development that was proposed in Crested Butte, and it didn't go through. I, my timing is probably off on this. I feel like it was about a year ago. But we're talking about this Brush Creek development that had been proposed. And I confess, when this got sort of shot down, again, I confess, I saw this as like, wait a second, how serious are we as a community? You know, there was a development. I thought, I, I saw maybe some different numbers. It was either going to introduce, well, I won't, I won't make up a number. It was going to introduce X number of affordable housing units. This was declined. I then was like, wait a minute, are we just a community that likes to talk about the idea of affordable housing, but then not actually act on it? You have a different perspective on this. You are also much more informed on these things than I am. Uh, to be clear, if anyone was confused by that still at this far into the conversation, but I'd love to hear you talk about that Brush Creek proposal, why it didn't go forward, because I imagine that many other mountain towns have had similar affordable housing developments be proposed, maybe not get passed. And maybe this will help all of us think about what's the good way to do this or the less good way to do this, et cetera. Yeah. Brush Creek for anyone who's not in the Crested Butte Valley is just south of the town. It's on a property that was jointly owned with interest from Gunnison County, uh, Crested Butte Mountain Resort, uh, which is our ski resort, the town of Mount Crested Butte, where we're sitting right now, and then the town of Crested Butte, who I work for. Those four entities owned the property. A private investor came to the four investors with a development proposal, and it was a private investment. And so it was a very, very exciting opportunity to address a housing deficit that we have in the valley. And as it proceeded, it started with a number. It didn't start with a community engagement process. The town, the county, none of the four entities has a, had a vision for the property. It was never vetted with the community. So they were simply had nothing, no basis to react. And so when that project came forward with a number of units, uh, there was a lot of compromise and a lot of negotiations going on, but there was no foundation of knowledge of what the four entities really wanted to accomplish. So very unfortunately, that project met its demise politically. And we live in a participatory government. And if you don't go to town hall and share your thoughts, it's very hard for our council makers to, you know, make truly informed decisions. So I actually understand completely why Brush Creek didn't work, because many of the issues at Brush Creek worked against our core values uh, in the community. While, yes, it started to address housing, it really exacerbated transportation challenges. It exacerbated views in the corridor and open space challenges. It put stresses on the community that none of the four entities were truly prepared to deal with. 
And so it met its demise and we hear about it every day. And hopefully this is a beacon to raise awareness, to come forward and participate in Compass and do a collaborative vision for that property. So we still have the property and let's do a collaborative vision so we can go forward with a solution. And the county has learned and so has the town. The town is moving forward, as mentioned earlier, what we're calling Sixth and Butte uh, Housing Initiative. There's 60 units going in there. We're doing a very extensive community engagement process now so that when we do get the private investment side, it's met with less resistance and a better, clearer path forward. The county's doing that same initiative for Whetstone. Whetstone is a property right across from the Brush Creek property that the county owns. They're doing a very comprehensive community outreach and defining their vision for the property before they send it out to the development community. So it's Brush Creek was a victim of timing, is a victim of, quite frankly, none of the four entities were prepared to deal with it. And we are sort of blindly going forward with a very interesting proposal, but we didn't have a solution of how to address it. And, and hopefully that was a lesson learned from everybody. And we can get a much better product out of Whetstone, out of Sixth and Butte, and eventually out of Brush Creek. Just to recap this for people, and we'll see if you sign off on this. So maybe we could take this as a general principle for development in any mountain town. From what you've just said, sounds like we might want to go about this rather than having the work start with a private developer coming in to say, I could do exactly this you're proposing the community ought to understand the potential spots for a development, go through the process of figuring out how many units could go here, what would transportation look like, and the rest, and then putting out a request for proposals. So kind of going community to private developer as opposed to private developer coming into a community and rolling out the plan. Does that is that what you're going for here? That's exactly what I'm going for here. So in my 30 years, about half of my time was actually working for the private sector. Now, we did a lot of community advocacy in that private sector, but I work for a lot of private developers. And what they first and foremost want is clarity of outcome, a predictable process. You can have a lot of challenging realities to a site, but if they know the path forward, then they're going to be much more successful, have a better financial return and much more motivated. So we had a private investor who came forward with an idea and struggled for two and a half years and then got shot down. If you have the towns come in or the municipalities and the government collaboratively work with the community and say a vision and say, this is the path forward, follow these guidelines, and then the private investment follows those guidelines, it's going to be a very predictable time. So developers put money up front. It's a huge risk. And until that's entitled and that gets a development approval, they're using their own money. They're not using lenders' money. They're using so it's incredibly risky for them to put the money down if there isn't a clear path forward. So if you want private investment and you want the market to respond to your community, the communities need to be very clear on what they want. And that's what we're doing now at Sixth and Butte. That's what the county's doing at Whetstone. Um, and so I think it's going to be a much more successful outcome than what Brush Creek was. It was interesting because when we, you know, a few minutes ago hearing this, I wondered if private developers might be like, oh, that's great. So the community planner guy wants to get all up in our business 
you know, they're, they're not a developer. They don't know how this is actually, how this actually gets done. But given everything you just went on to say, it's like, no, you, they're going to be met with bad times to kind of start with a position of, look, I'm a developer. I know how to do this. I've done a bunch of projects in the past. You should get out of my way and just let me cook. It's never worked. And every developer I know will tell you that. Government is part of development. We regulate the development. We set the zonings. We give permission for development to happen. There is no community in America that the private investor dictates where things go. In the end, the council has to approve it. So if you can create clear paths so council can approve it, you're making the development community understand a predictable outcome. And that's the most important thing to private investors. I want to talk about nostalgia. This is something that when we're talking about these mountain town communities, the word that gets used a lot is we need to preserve. We need to preserve core values. We need to preserve the landscape, you know, and, or, or we need to preserve the character of a town. And I think this is an interesting thing, right? I would say that in some circles, nostalgia has a bit of a pejorative connotation, right? Like it is inherently conservative. You are are trying to recapture a past and those who might not like the word nostalgia might say, you are not keeping up with responding to being responsive enough to a developing, living, breathing community. So let's talk a bit about this and your thoughts on nostalgia and whether this is something that, well, should be viewed as a dirty word or a positive. Yeah. And nostalgia is a, a term that pro-growth individuals tend to use to say, why are you stopping me from doing what I want to do? And what we call it is community preservation, and it is a positive and a negative and at risk. And I don't think at any place the community planning profession wants to freeze a community in time. What we mean by community character is there's a core essence of Aspen, there's a core essence of Telluride, or there's a core essence of Crested Butte that reflect who we are, not who you know a different community is. It's very unique to you. And so people and buildings reflect who you are, and that's community preservation. So I get calls all the time saying, hey, if you just let me develop a little bit more on my property, raise the roof, the, the allowed building heights, change what we call floor area ratio, which tells you how much you can build on your site. If you change those, we can build an ADU. And, and again, this is kind of like building on open space. It's a very tight rope you have to walk. And you can do it if you do it well. And so what we're concerned about from a community preservation is what is Crested Butte? And that's a question to the community. So I can't, with any confidence, raise the allowed building heights, change the density on any individual lot without a much broader community conversation. And investing in that community is we don't want to create anywhere USA. We don't want sprawl. We don't want uniform architecture to say, wow, this isn't Crested Butte anymore. And so, no, we don't want nostalgia. And I can understand the pro-growth community saying, oh, you're freezing Crested Butte in time. I push back and say, I don't want anywhere America, 
right? So where's the middle ground? And that's through thoughtful dialogue, thoughtful communication, and don't just rush to a conclusion of raising your building heights, changing your density allowances, right? Who said that sprawling out is the answer or making uniform America so Crested Butte loses its unique character is the answer. I, for one, won't do that until we do a broader community engagement and have those trade-off conversations. That makes a lot of sense. Like effectively, we don't want to turn mountain towns into McDonald's franchises that you might as well go to one. This one is just the same as the other. So there you are. That makes a lot of sense. You want to protect the locale, the flavor in a given place. And I think that is a, that's a conversation I think we hopefully are fairly familiar with in an era of globalization that not everything should be the same everywhere, right? That seems fairly easy to get behind. How then do you think about that and, you know, preserving certain aspects while also doing something that has been stated by a number of mountain communities, doing things like increasing diversity in these places? Are those two things at loggerheads or not necessarily? Oh, I don't think they're at loggerheads at all. I think the issue is increasing diversity is a reflection of our housing stock, right? Our land prices are going so much up, we're losing diversity. Our employees, our local residents are being priced out and we're getting a monoculture. A monoculture of are they full-time or are they part-time? It doesn't matter. It's a monoculture because we no one else can afford to live here. And so I think the challenge is it's not our historic preservation laws that are squeezing out the locals. I guarantee you that. So if we have a local business here, Butte Bagels, it's in a beautiful historic place just off of Elk Avenue. It's so good. It's a quirky little <laughs> building that our historic preservation ordinances are preserving that building. And it's probably keeping affordable business there because it's a quirky building. Uh, if our zoning, our protective ordinance wasn't there, uh, it would have been cleared a long time ago with a uniform standard for high-priced restaurants, high-priced retail, and the quirky, which would never have gone into the quirky building that Butte Bagels has gone into. And so historic preservation can work hand in glove with affordability. Uh, and so don't it, it's when you look at something through a single lens that you start to think there's flaws and we want you more lateral thinking, more comprehensive planning, comprehensive thinking, and more collaborative thinking so you can understand those trade-offs. And so I'm not saying we wouldn't increase density or increase building heights. I want a broad community conversation so everyone knows what they're getting into and what the risk is if we go there. And an informed community to make an informed decision, then if that's what the community wants to do, then by all means, let's go forward and do that. But really up until this year, we haven't had a truly participatory government. So one of the nice things about COVID-19 is we got online, people are on Zoom participating in government and you know, to the demise or to the struggle of council and staff, all of our meetings this whole summer have gone past midnight, but we've had over a hundred people participate in every conversation and that's fantastic so we feel with much more confidence council is making the right decisions staff are making the right recommendations because people are participating and so the great question of do we preserve do we go nostalgic or do we promote growth 
That's a community dialogue that no staff member, no council by themselves should be able to make that decision. And so that's why we're starting our Compass conversation in September. Again, we want to bring everyone in to have those trade-off conversations. I should let you get back to town hall. Thank you for this little interruption in your day. But before I let you go, I guess I'd like to just give you the chance to give some parting thoughts here or leave us with some words for those of us who are just trying to wrap our heads around this whole situation and what you would have us thinking about or doing, you know, as we kind of look at this as the next step forward. Well, I, I hope everyone takes on what Jonathan, what you have personally stated at the very beginning, that you're feeling a, a lot of responsibility to raise this issue and, and talk about it and just for your own sake, get a better understanding of the challenges. And that's my request to everybody is really dive into the different challenges of a mountain community. Every mountain community is fantastic from Ketchum to Taos to, to Telluride to Crested Butte. And until you're informed and better educated, um, you're really not understanding the issues and going forward. And we'd love your feedback. We want you at the table. We firmly believe it takes a village to solve a problem. Staff doesn't have the silver bullet. Governments don't have the silver bullet. The ones that have been the most effective are the ones where the citizens are most participatory. And so I want to thank you, Jonathan, for doing this podcast just to raise awareness in all our mountain communities and maybe hit an audience that doesn't traditionally show up to town hall. And I think the most important parting thought is we live in a participatory government. It's a democracy. And bitching on Facebook is one strategy. Bitching in front of council is another and I think bitching in front of council, raising awareness in front is far more effective. I have seen councils all over this country get swayed by who's in the room. And if you make a compelling case in the room, council listens much better. So thank you for raising awareness and to the audience, join us, help us. No one has the answer. People make mistakes. Together we can make a better solution. So that's, that's what I, my parting thought. Troy, appreciate it. Thanks for another great conversation. Nice to show you this room. Are you going to be healed up enough? Or, or what's your ski situation? My knee is going to be ready to go. It is going to be ready. It okay. is. I, I hit a tree in the powder last February. Knocked me out for the season, but I'll be ready this year. Okay. I think, in fact, the first time I ever met you, you were kind of like limping around the neighborhood in a, in a pretty sizable brace. I think that might be the first time I met you. I'm, I'm not sure. But, uh, well, I'm happy to hear that you're healing up. Let's make some turns. And those are coming soon. I know. We had a little dusting today. I'm excited. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate all the work you're doing and for your sharing the perspective on these issues with us. So thanks a lot. You bet. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Troy for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>